0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you
2: by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, William Bernstein. He is an investment manager, but also the author of a number of books. You've written a number of books on investment, including The Intelligent Asset Allocator, The Four Pillars of Investing, Rational Expectations, The Investor's Manifesto, but today we're going to talk about your more historical books, this one which came out, I guess, almost 20 years ago, called The Birth of Plenty, which is all about how the prosperity of the modern world was created, and I've done a lot of interviews on this topic. This one right here, A Splendid Exchange, How Trade Shaped the World, came out a few years after that. And then I don't have your book on the media, but I do have this one that came out recently, The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. Welcome, Bill. Glad to be here. Well, I have to say, look, (laughs) all the things that you write about in your books there are topics that are of deep interest to me. I mean, my graduate work was really all about how the West got rich, so to speak. And so that book, when it came out, I really loved it and dug into it. And I used to teach a course on multinational management. So the book on trade, you know, I really got into that. And I used to teach Heckscher Olin and all that stuff. But this latest book, The Delusion of Crowds, it covers, I think, kind of two distinct areas of group insanity, one having to do with kind of religious millenarianism and the other one to do with kind of financial bubbles. And at least the part about financial bubbles overlaps very heavily with a course that I've been teaching for a couple of decades in behavioral finance. And so I have a feeling that if we were hanging out together, having like a dinner, we we would probably go well into the early hours of the morning because there's just so many overlaps. At the end of the book, In your afterword, you thank all the various people that helped you to write the book. And you said that this is a book that merges neuropsychology, social psychology, evolutionary psychology, financial economics and history, macroeconomics and eschatology or theology of all the three Abrahamic religions. Now, that's a lot to bite off in a shoe. And so, how can you be like a money manager and also a polymath like this? So, just before we jump into the topics itself, I mean, what does it mean to be sort of a curious person in today's world? And I'd actually think that if you are that kind of curious person, it almost like immunizes you against the kinds of manias and delusions that you write about. I mean, do you think that, you know, having this restless curiosity can serve as sort of a, an antidote to, you know, mania and extremism, or are they completely orthogonal?
0: No. I've been told by more than one person that I am very peculiar. I am someone who likes living at the steep edge of the learning curve. Now, the one thing you didn't mention is that I practiced medicine for about a third of a century before I got into finance and writing about history. And people have asked me, why have you never written about medicine? And the answer is because I did it for 33 years. I've been there. I've done that. It's not interesting anymore.
2: Well, hold on. That sounds like fertile territory for, you know, if you think about all the quack cures and all of the fads, you know, the green pills with Dr. Oz and stuff. I mean, this is right up your alley.
0: Yeah. Dr. Oz is a subject that we could probably spend a couple of hours on you know, it really boils down to, you know, how financially motivated are you? And the one thing that shines through about Dr. Oz, he's a brilliant cardiothoracic surgeon, but he also is all about making money. And when I think about money, I think about the famous conversation that uh, Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut had uh, in which they were at a party uh, at a Long Island uh, hedge fund manager. And I believe it was Vonnegut turns to Heller and says, You know, this guy probably makes more in one day than we make in five years. And Heller turns to him and says, Yeah, but we've got one thing that he'll never have. And then Vonnegut asks that. And then Heller says, Enough. And I'm one of these people who've always had enough. And I enjoy pursuing history and psychology and the sciences just for their own pleasure. I'm not a monk. But on the other hand, I'm not someone who's going to spend the next five years of my life adding two or three zeros to my net worth.
2: Well, okay. So in the book, Delusions of Crowd, I mean, you talk about how people kind of go insane. I wish that that you'd waited a a year to write the book because then you could have had an entire chapter on Bitcoin and crypto and meme stocks. But you say that, you know, people, I think you're quoting, I think it was Charles Mackay. You, You say that people rarely go insane on their own. They tend to kind of go insane in groups. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me as I was going through this book, and I try to emphasize this in my class on behavioral finance, is that, you know, it's not the dumb people that go crazy. It's not just the dumb people. I mean, the people that you describe in this book, both the religious fanatics and the bubble participants, they're all very intelligent people. And particularly when I was reading about how many people in top levels of government get swept up in some of these fads, right? Like the great, late, great planet Earth. I remember that book came out when I was a kid and I kind of read it when I was like, I don't know, 12 years old and I got all excited about it. And I remember I knew people, you know, like my mom had friends that were like getting into this and I was into it for about a a week before I realized it was nuts. But, you know, there were people at the highest level of government that were swept up in these things. So shouldn't intelligence kind of prevent you from believing in, in crazy things? You used a wonderful
0: word a couple of minutes ago, which is orthogonal, and that applies here, is rationality and intelligence are entirely orthogonal. There are people who really aren't all that brilliant, but are eminently rational. Those are the kinds of people you want making decisions for you. And then there are people who are very intelligent and aren't all that rational. You know, can you say Donald Rumsfeld? Can you say Ronald Reagan? Reagan was a very smart guy, but he just wasn't entirely rational. That wasn't his training. He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a business person. He wasn't a lawyer. He was an actor. And actors are people who are very good at making things come true because they want to believe that they're true.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that, that struck me also is that I think that most of the things that you describe in the book are skipped over in the history textbooks. Particularly, I didn't know anything about this William Miller. He was what was a very high percentage of Americans were were swept up in this movement, right? It's kind of like people were talking about how the flu of 1918 is kind of ignored in the textbooks. Why do you suppose it is that, you know, whether it's religious booms and busts or financial booms and busts are kind of passed over in the history textbooks?
0: I think because they're so uncomfortable
2: to talk about.
0: We like to think, we like to flatter ourselves that we are eminently rational mammals primates with very big brains. And the fact that we're actually dominated by this evolutionarily ancient reptilian brain system of ours that sits deep in our brain, our limbic system, is something that we tend to ignore and want to repress. We want to think well of ourselves. We want to speak well and think well of our species. And when you look at the way that people make decisions and think about things, it turns out not to be true at all. There are two very famous psychologists Stanovich and West, who came up with system one and system two. System one is the old reptilian system. System two is the newer system that uh, is the seat of our intelligence. And Danny Kahneman very famously said about that, that system two is simply System one's press agent. System one makes the decisions, and system two, our supposed rational facilities, simply rationalize those emotionally derived conclusions that we come to.
2: Right. And I think that and this is a point that I make in my class a lot is that, you know, you got to take the bitter with the sweet and kind of what our superpower is as humans is our capacity for imitation and mimicry. And this is how innovations can get diffused so rapidly throughout humanity. But this also comes with a price. Is this book really about the pathologies of mimicry and our tendency to converge around certain belief systems through the the vector of narratives?
0: You just hit the nail on the head. What this book, The Delusions of Crowds, is really about is it's a meditation on human nature and the evolutionary origins of human nature. We are first and foremost the ape that imitates. And the easiest way to think about this is to go back to the late Pleistocene. We crossed the Bering Straits around 12, 15,000 years ago. And within 5,000 years, there are human beings at the tip of Tierra del Fuego. And along the way, human beings had to learn how to make kayaks and igloos, which, let me tell you, if you've never seen either of those things made, they're impossible to do. They're impossible to figure out by themselves. You have to learn how to hunt bison on the Great Plains. You have to learn how to make poison blowguns in the Amazon, all things that you can't figure out how to do on your own if you just get plunked down in the Amazon, let's say. So you learn to do these things by imitating those rare individuals or more commonly the sequence of events that leads to their invention. So our primary way of surviving in a brutal Hobbesian state of nature is to be able to imitate. That is our superpower. Now, the other two characteristics of human nature that go into this, is that we are also the ape that tells stories. When we went out to hunt woolly mammoths, the one hunter didn't issue vectors to his other coworkers. He said, you guys go right, we'll go left, and we're gonna spear the beast from both sides. So we're narrative animals. And that is how we understand the world. We don't understand the world well in terms of data and in terms of facts. We understand the world in terms of narratives. And a good narrative will always trump, so to speak, hard facts and dispositive facts and data. And then finally, the third characteristic is we're the ape that seeks status. So we want to think well of ourselves. We want to think well of the people around us. And we want to murder everybody else. It's what social psychologists like to call in-group, out-group behavior. So it's the roots of the xenophobia and the ethnic nationalism we're living through today.
2: I mean... I don't think of this book as a departure from your other books, right? Because, I mean, if you think about Birth of Plenty, it's really about how the generation and diffusion of good ideas, right? And how that was kind of accelerated at a moment in time. The book on Splendid Exchange talked about how the cost of moving merchandise plunged dramatically at a particular point in time. And so this natural impulse to kind of commingle and truck and barter, both in stuff and in stories just kind of took off exponentially. And then, you know, your book about the media is about, in part, the technology that has, I think, fueled (laughs) these things and, and allowed them to get transmitted across, you know, larger footprints much more quickly. So, I mean, if those three books were about changes in the cost of communicating, trading, and diffusing, should we see sort of a, I don't know, an acceleration in the creation of and puncturing of these bubbles? I mean, if you think about Isis, and you wrote about Isis in the last chapter of the book, it's almost hard to imagine that the way in which it manifested itself, which is very different from Backelsen's Mania and Munster, you know, that wouldn't have been possible without the modern technologies of the media and the other technologies that you talk about, right?
0: Well, sure, it's accelerating. We can see it all around us and not necessarily for the betterment of mankind. One of my favorite phrases, memes that I picked up in writing this last book was the concept, the phenomenon of three connections of Alex Jones, which means that you start out on YouTube wanting to figure out how to replace the spark plug on your lawnmower. And within three clicks, you're finding out that Sandy Hook was a setup and was an act and it never really occurred.
2: Right. And so, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about is this tendency to do pattern recognition. Right? I mean, this is another human attribute that it's a feature, not a bug, but the conspiracy theories, right? It's a byproduct of our very, very capable pattern recognition skills, right? I like to describe that in terms of
0: confirmation bias. Ideologues, conspiracy theorists tend to view the world through a very narrow tube. And the filter on top of that tube, the lens on top of that tube, is confirmation bias. So they view the world through a very narrow framework. And then the only thing they let into that framework are things that are consistent with their point of view or their theory of the world. And everything else gets rejected. So ideologues tend to be people who don't update their priors very often. And when I'm listening to an analyst or a commentator, what I'm really listening for is not how eloquent they are or how smart they sound, because it turns out that the most eloquent people tend to be people who can get away with a lot of analytical sloppiness. What I'm looking for is nuance. I'm looking for someone who can see both sides of an argument and can argue something from both sides. And if I don't hear that, I tend to turn those people off.
2: Yeah, I think you quoted Phil Tetlock, where you said that there's people who say however a lot and people say moreover a lot, right? Yeah, it's the moreover to however ratio. The higher that is,
0: the less you should be listening to a person.
2: Uh Uh-huh. But when I bought the book, I thought it was going to be entirely about financial bubbles. And then I discovered that it was only half about financial bubbles. And then it was half about kind of, you know, religious millenarianism or or manias. And I'd never seen those two things kind of yoked together. And so I want to know, like, why did you think of yoking them together, because on first glance, the millenarianism is about kind of the end of the world, right? And it's all coming to an end. Whereas the bubble mania is like, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're going to the moon. And it and seemed like complete opposites until you realize that most of these, you know, millenarian stories are about the, you know, the rapture of the chosen, right? And so there's like an in-group, out-group, and the people who are on the actual rocket going to the moon, and then there's everybody else, right?
0: Yeah. The person who yoked the two of those together, of course, was Charles Mackay. This wasn't my idea. His book that was published first in 1841 was Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which is a book I'm sure you're... still in print. It's still in print. It's been in print for the past 182 years. And I first came across the book in the early 1990s. And I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was kind of like a bad B movie about the fall of the Roman Empire. I didn't think it was terribly relevant. The Financial markets didn't seem to be that nuts at the time. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder what it must have been like to live through such a period. And lo and behold, about five years later, it all unfolded before my very eyes. And it saved me a bundle of money. I didn't get snookered by the Internet bubble because I had read Mackay's descriptions of previous bubbles. And so I filed that away. And about... Eight or nine years ago, like everybody else in the world, I was gobsmacked by the ability of the Islamic State to attract people from wealthy European countries, prosperous people, to fight and die in one of the worst places in the world. And I asked myself, how did they do that? Well, it turned out the way they did that was by deploying an eschatological narrative, a theological narrative that's nearly identical to the evangelical. Christian one, something called premillennial dispensationalism. And I realized then and there I had to write the homage to Mackay's book, because Mackay's book is very roughly about one-third financial bubbles, one-third religious bubbles, and then one-third bubbles in other fields like fashion and health. And I decided to chuck those by the wayside because I didn't want to write too much of a doorstep. So that's how I put the two of those together. Now, the question is, is how do you yoke those two together? And Mackay really didn't understand that because he didn't have the neuropsychological data available to him. But we now know how compelling narratives out and how important narratives are, what are the two most compelling narratives that you can think of? Well, number one is the narrative of how the world ends. And number two is how you're going to get effortlessly rich. Okay. So those are the most viral narratives that you can have. And that's how you got the delusional belief systems that surrounded those two ideas.
2: Now, one of the things that I read about in your book was there was an insurance company that came up with rapture insurance. (laughs) That's just like, this is just so brilliant. I'd love to be at the meeting where that discussion took place, where that proposal came up. Because I, you know, at the end of every one of my uh, behavioral finance classes, I have the students present some kind of project, like a money-making project. And sometimes it's a trading model. Sometimes it's a product that you can target investors or whatever. Sometimes it's to kind of take advantage of people's irrationality. Sometimes it's to protect them from their irrationality. And never has anybody proposed rapture insurance. I just love this concept. It's a classic
0: risk management game theory sort of question, which is obviously you go long. You sell as much of the insurance as you can because, you know, if the rapture doesn't occur and the Armageddon and the tribulation doesn't occur, you've made a bundle of money. And if it doesn't occur, then there's nobody on the other side of the trade to collect from you. So either way, you're fine.
2: Right. Well, I think it was, wasn't it meant to just, provide for the people who are left behind, right? So if you get swept up because you're good and then your unsaved children now no longer have a provider, then you have to provide for them, right?
0: Yeah, I suppose. But, you know, the legal institutions that would surround that sort of business transaction would probably no longer be operative in that case. You could argue it either way. But if I were the risk control officer in that insurance company, I would go all
2: in. Well, you know, when you read about some of these promoters, right, so when you think about Backelson and David Koresh, I mean, you know, they have lots of concubines. They have lots of sexual partners. They surround themselves, some of them at least, with wealth and, you know, appropriate to themselves a large amount of resources. And, you know, that provides sort of a nice, neat evolutionary story as to why, you know, shamans succeed and promote themselves. But it would be easy to kind of look at that and take a very cynical view. Like, for instance, there was this guy... Novgorod's right, who had the Luna tattooed on his arm. Like, it's very easy to say, well, this guy's just a, an operator, right? He's just a con man. In fact, that was the story around David Koresh, right, that he was just a con man. But I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that most of these folks who are, you know, whether it's running cults or promoting some new financial product, they really do believe in what they're selling. For the most part.
0: Yes, that is true. And that was the tragedy, the great tragedy of the Waco disaster, which was the FBI thought that Koresh was a con man. And he wasn't. He was a very sincere, devout person. Now, was he delusional and deceived? Of course he was. But he was nobody's con man. The classic example, the most spectacular, compelling example of a devout person who had no agenda and didn't take sexual advantage of his followers was William Miller, who was behind the Great Disappointment of the 1840s. Just to, for people who aren't familiar with the episode, William Miller was an evangelical Christian who, in the 1840s, prophesized the end of the world on a specific date, and it kept moving up and up as it didn't occur, but the final date was October 22nd of 1844. And you know, finally, when on that date the world didn't end, his sect went all to pieces. But he was a very sincere man who lived very humbly. Uh, he and his colleagues were sued by a couple of people for fraud, and he won all those cases because he lived very humbly and wasn't taking financial advantage of any of his followers.
2: Now, uh, you also tell the story about the railroads. I mean, one of the things about some of these bubbles, at least on the financial side, is that they do, I mean, in some sense, serve as a a public goods provider, right? You know, all of these investors who lose their shirts, they leave behind typically a, a legacy, right? So whether it is the dense network of railroads that you find in the UK or the global crossing of fiber optic cables all around the world, right? Sometimes these things can benefit the world, right? Even though at the expense of the investors.
0: Yeah, this is a very old story. The first place that you see it most clearly was the railroad bubble in England in the 1830s and in the 1840s. And then you see it again during the late part of the 19th century with the building of railroads in the United States. You see it again in the 1920s with the building out by one man, Samuel Insull, of the U.S. power grid or a large part of the U.S. power grid. And then finally, you mentioned Gary Winnick of of Global Crossing, who built something like 25 percent of the world's submarine fiber optic cable, much of which is still not even yet lit. And the reason why it's not yet lit is interesting because it has to do with the technology at either end of the fiber optic cables improved so much that you really didn't need much more fiber because the, uh, the connecting devices were able to handle so much more traffic. Over time, you really didn't need to lay that much more cable for about a period of approximately 15 or, or 20 years. And what I like to say is that tech investors are capitalism's philanthropists. They basically fund all of these wonderful inventions that benefit all of us, and in the process, they generally lose their shirts. I mean, how many rides to the airport did I get for $10 because of tech investors? God bless them.
2: Yeah, well, it's yet to be determined whether the Bitcoin bubble will leave behind any useful technology, right? That's TBD, I think.
0: I would agree with that. I really don't know. I mean, it's certainly, you're certainly not going to get rich investing in cryptocurrency, but you may very well get rich by investing in the
2: technologies that it enables. But, you know, Mackay himself was living in the middle of Hudson's railroad bubble and didn't even comment on it. So I think it was Greenspan who said that you never know that you're in a bubble until after the fact. You know, I think you also, quote, Justice Potter Stewart, you know, describing pornography as, you know, you know it when you see it. But, but with a bubble, you don't actually know it when you see it. You kind of only know it when you see it in the rearview mirror, right? I mean, how is it that even people who are experts in bubbles get swept up in bubbles?
0: Yeah, I, I want to give a shout out to a guy by the name of Andrew Adlisco, who's a mathematician at, I believe, University of Minnesota, who's done some just absolutely superb economic historical Work And one of the things he figured out was what you just mentioned, which was that Mackay actually got snookered by the railroad bubble. He wrote the book pretty much just while it was in process, and he didn't see it. And then, you know, a lot of financial economists had tried to model bubbles. Gene Fama famously said that the word bubble drives him nuts because he can't model it. No one can model it. And so that's that's one side of it. But I do believe that you can recognize it. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. And I think that in real time, you can identify it. And that's been the benefit and the value of Mackay's book. You see four things, really. The first thing that you see is when a given investment becomes the subject of popular fascination. So these days, you can't step into an Uber cab or a lift cab without talking to your driver about their, their cryptocurrency investing. So that's number one. Number two is when you see people quitting otherwise solid, well-paying professions to day trade. I practiced in a medical community at the time of the internet bubble, and there was one clinic that was just getting the, basically the town's first high-speed connection, which was taken up most of the time, hogged most of the time by a specialist who was day trading all day long instead of operating on people. And that's another sign of a bubble. And then a third sign of the bubble is, and this is a, a very subtle thing that you don't think about until you encounter, which is when skepticism is met by outright hostility. So I think we both remember telling people probably back in the 90s, no, this is not going to end well. And people wouldn't just disagree with you. They would get
2: angry at you. Oh, yeah, like you're a heretic. You know, you're the damned.
0: Well, there are five words. You just don't
2: get it. Okay. Yeah. This time's different.
0: Yeah, this time's the four most expensive words in the English language. And and so we both saw that. And the reason for that, if you think about it, is you're disconfirming a very pleasing narrative, which is you're going to get effortlessly rich by investing in this or that asset class. And people don't like hearing that, no, you're not going to get rich. They get angry at you when you tell them that. And the final thing is when you see outrageous predictions. And my favorite was... I think it was John McAfee, who said that he would perform an act on himself that required great spinal flexibility in front of a national audience on television if Bitcoin didn't reach, I forget whether it was a half million or a million dollars a coin. And thankfully, he, he didn't you know, have to- uh, It was
2: like the Dow 20,000. Do you remember that book or whatever that came out in the 90s?
0: Yeah, Dow 36,000. Yeah, And there's a perfect example of people who are very intelligent, whose rationality just wasn't there. You didn't need to know a lot about financial economics to realize that Dow 36,000 in 1999 was not something that made any financial economic sense. It made no sense in terms of equilibrium markets.
2: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, you also talk about Hyman Minsky, and he had criteria as well. And I think he kind of channeled uh, Mackay in in a way. And he's, he's an economist that doesn't get, I think, a lot of attention within the financial economics world. I mean, in fact, you know, behavioral finance is, you know, it's increasing, obviously, in terms of how much academic resources are being devoted to it. But I find that, Behavioral finance is is one of those fields where it kind of has more appeal outside the academy than inside the academy. You know, people who are investment practitioners are really curious about this.
0: Well, I think the answer to that is fairly simple. It's what I call the prom queen theory of life, which is we all have peaks and valleys in our skill sets. So let's say you're the prom queen or the prom king, okay? Your skill set, the peak of your skill set is how good looking and charismatic you are. And that's how you judge other people, all right? Jocks, how jocks judge other people. They don't really care how powerful or how rich you are or even how good-looking you are. They care about, you know, how well you do on the pitch and on the basketball court. And then finally, you can see where I'm going with this. If you're an academic whose primary skill peak is that you can solve differential equations as easily as most people brush their teeth. That is how you judge other people and that is what you emphasize in importance. So you invent these very fancy models and if there's you know some sort of fuzzy psychology that tells people that no maybe you shouldn't be depending on these models well that goes right out the window because that's not consonant with your worldview. There's a wonderful wonderful story that is told about one particular nobel prize winner who sits with another nobel prize winner on the uh, hiring committee at a prestigious university and paul volcker applies for a position there and the first guy says, Yeah, we'd like to have him, but is he smart? And the second Nobel Prize winner says, What do you mean is he smart? He's merely the greatest central banker that ever lived. And the first one says, Yeah, yeah, but is he smart like us?
2: Well, there's, there's another story that I, I heard from another guest on my podcast where Vladimir Nabokov was applying for a job as a professor of English without a PhD. And they said, why should we hire him? And he's like, well, he's written all these great novels. And he's like, well, next thing you know, the biology department is going to hire an elephant. So, (laughs) So, right. I mean, it seems like if it's narratives that get us into this trouble, then it's not going to be formulas that get us out of the trouble. Right. And so it seems like the way in which you prevent people from succumbing to these narratives is by telling them narratives and, you know, describing what happened to people who had fallen prey to some of these delusions in the past. I mean, that that to me, at least, is the most powerful way. If I try to teach people how to do discounted cash flow analysis, then when they fall into a bubble, then they just figure out ways to, you know, push up the numerator and push down the denominator so they can use discounted cash flow to justify their mania. It seems like, you know, the way to counter a story is with another story. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a field which is fraught with ironies. If you are a seller of opinions, you want to sell opinions, then you tell stories. Okay. But if you are a consumer of opinions, you want to ignore the stories and focus on the data. Now, this gets into all of the books that I write, and particularly this last book, which is I had to fill the book with narratives. That's the only way people will read books. It's the only way you sell books. If I made the book into a compendium of psychological research with you know, all sorts of statistical regression tables, no one would buy
2: the book. I, I might.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. But I can tell you that You know, the book would not have sold, none of my books would have sold very well if I didn't lace them with the most compelling narratives I could find, which makes me a little uncomfortable. And, you know, people like to, are fond of pointing it out
2: to me and I plead guilty. Well, I mean, when I encounter any of my students 20 years after I've taught them, that's the only thing they remember. I mean, they're just walking around with a bag of narratives and that's that bag of narratives that guides them in the world after they leave school. I know very few students who come up to me and say, you know, thank you so much for teaching me you know, option pricing, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, that's never what I get in in terms of remembrance.
0: Yeah, the most compelling example of that, in my mind, was one of the early Republican primary debates, I believe it was in 2015. And Donald Trump wasn't taken very seriously, uh, certainly not in late 2015. And at that one of the early debates, Ben Carson, who's a fairly well-known neurosurgeon, very smart guy, gets asked about vaccines, childhood vaccines. And he says, well, you know, the data show that there's very little in the way of side effects. Autism is probably not an issue. It's probably something that was made up by an English pediatrician. And I'm going to, you know, immunize my kids. But, you know, I'm a good Republican, so it's got to be a matter of personal choice. Well, fair enough. Trump interrupts him and says, I had an employee and she had a daughter, a beautiful girl, who, young girl, who got immunized and developed autism. It's an epidemic, I tell you. And people who saw that debate scored that point for Trump. Everybody did. Even the people who knew that he was spouting Blarney scored that point for Trump. He just did such an effective job of destroying DAC, facts, and data with narrative.
2: Well, in terms of millenarianism, uh, I wonder, we see, at least among young people, a concern about end-of-world in the form of global warming. And, you know, if you're trying to promote awareness of global warming, I mean, it certainly helps to have, you know, a story that gets people excited, right? I mean, I've, I've heard of people that young people that don't even want to have children because they think that having another child is going to, you know, tip the balance in favor of the, you know, end of earth. So, I mean, is whether it's for a good cause or a bad cause, you know, to get support behind some kind of movement, I mean, it seems like you're going to get more results by telling a a doomsday story that's very compelling rather than laying out a scientific narrative. I mean, Scientific narratives can be, I mean, you can use the language of science, right, to create a compelling narrative. But if it taps into some kind of doomsday phenomenon, perhaps you're more likely to get people to take it seriously. Is, Is that right?
0: Yeah. A polar bear dying stranded on an ice floe will beat an oxygen isotope study every single time.
2: Right. And so maybe I want to circle back to this. I mean, there's so many different stories we could get to. Bockelson, that story was one that, that I had not known. And, you know, I, I'm an historian and I, I didn't know anything about that. And Miller, again, I didn't know anything about. And I'm wondering, will people look back on some of these other bizarre phenomena, like the satanic kindergartens? I forget whether you mentioned that or not, but that, that was another thing you probably could have written about. There was this upswing and concern over satanic grooming of children, right? In the 1990s, it even resulted in a bunch of court cases?
0: Yeah, it's a perennial. This is a, a narrative that in one form or another goes back about almost a thousand years. starts with the blood libel, with you know, the early plagues in Europe. And who got blamed for that? Well, the Jews, of course, got blamed for it. And the reason for the plague was God was dissatisfied with the fact that Jews were taking Christian babies and sacrificing them in rituals and drinking their blood. All right. You see that morph into the protocols of the elders of Zion all the way to George Soros funding Alvin Bragg. It's all the same narrative that, you know, there's these satanic people. It's why, you know, a pizza parlor got shot up in B.C. uh, about eight or 10 years ago, because, you know, Young children were being abused. And there were these, there was a spate of these court cases that you refer to that I actually did write about in the book where children were supposedly being sacrificed and sexually abused. In satanic rituals which you know these cases got brought to court and were absolutely destroyed there's a guy by the name of ted gunderson who just absolutely fascinates me who very nearly became director of the fbi he ran the biggest field offices of the fbi and he remained convinced till the day he died that there were sixty thousand children being murdered every year in satanic rituals. all right. Now, the idea that sixty thousand children would disappear and no one would know about it strains credulity. But this is a you know obviously an intelligent man who devoutly believed that that was the case. This story of satanic ritual sacrifice is something which is somehow rather deeply embedded in our, our evolutionary past and, and bubbles up to the surface from time to time.
2: It's hard to explain. If you spend most of your time in the academic circles in whatever, East Coast, West Coast, then you're probably not even aware of the existence of things like rapture fiction, which were, I think, bestsellers. And presumably if you are in you know the Muslim circles of educated Muslim folks, then you're also probably less aware of what's happening in the general populace. But some of the numbers that you cite, right, like the majority of Muslims believe in the end of days and, and the majority of Americans, I think, even believe in some kind of apocalypse that's uh, imminent. I mean, these are numbers that people don't typically talk about this. They're not, not really aware of the extent to which people believe these things. The best data that I've seen suggested in the United States is somewhere
0: between a quarter to a third of people believe that they are going to see the end of time in their lifetime, the theological end of time. And, you know, you and I live in this little bubble of people who are well-educated, who are totally unaware of these narratives. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to put them in the book, is to make secular Americans aware that there is this narrative out there that to us seems very strange and very bizarre, but to about a third of the population is as familiar as, you know, gone with the wind or the godfather.
2: But they also carry on with their ordinary lives. And, and you talk about how, you know, sometimes people will sell all their possessions and just abandon regular life. But there's other situations where their leaders are, are instructing them to just, you know, act like as if you're going to live forever, even though you know you're going to die. I mean, getting back to the insurance idea, I mean, why aren't these one third of Americans who, who believe this, why do they have 401ks? Like, what's the point?
0: Yeah, isn't that a really good question? And I'm not really sure I know how to answer it, except that maybe they're just
2: hedging their bets. And, um, and you also talk about how in the Jewish community, there's also this shared belief. And in Israel, there are folks that believe deeply in end of times.
0: Yeah, I think it's something which is basically hardwired into our psychology, which stems from our hunger for narratives, and particularly our hunger for compelling narratives. And as I said, what more compelling narrative than the end of the world? And it's not just the Abrahamic religions. That's What is striking about the Abrahamic religions is just how similar All three narratives are the the Jewish one, the Muslim one, and the Christian one. They're almost identical, except what's different among them, among those three religions, is who plays the hero and who plays the villain, obviously. And of course, you know, in Eastern religions, you also see a belief in the end of the world. You know, Shiva the Destroyer, reincarnation in Eastern religions. So it's not just an Abrahamic phenomena. What's an Abrahamic phenomena is this very peculiar end of times narrative, which is so similar among the three religions.
2: Now, another idea which I've never seen proposed in any of my classes is this idea of cloning red heifers. So, you know, presumably with CRISPR, you know, as as available to anybody who wants to use it, should we expect to see the export of Red heifers? Is this a good business idea for folks who have access to CRISPR?
0: I couldn't resist writing about that because it made such a wonderful chapter title, which is Apocalypse Cow. For those who aren't familiar with the narrative in the Jewish religion, there is a narrative that involves the birth of a red heifer, which is unblemished, which signals the building of the third temple in Jerusalem. And, oh, a decade or two ago, a red heifer was born, which got a lot of attention. And fortunately, within about a year or two, it developed some blemishes and some white hairs, so it didn't really fit the criteria. But this, interestingly, attracted the interest not so much of Jews, but of Christians, because Christians want to build the Third Temple, because the Third Temple heralds the onset of the end times when the believers, people who found Jesus, will get raptured. So they were fascinated by this because they thought, ah, we're finally going to get our, our reward. And there was a cattle breeder in Texas, I believe, who wanted to go to Israel and breed these red heifers to bring on the apocalypse. Uh, and it didn't work out financially. He, he may have been a great breeder, but apparently he wasn't a very good businessman. And so his, his enterprise fell by the wayside. It was an amusing episode.
2: I think you talk about how we've had a couple near misses in terms of World War III. And, you know, a lot of people think that World War III is going to happen when somebody accidentally pushes a button and we get some nuclear weapons flying back and forth. But it, probably a, a more likely scenario is somebody's going to destroy the. Dome of the Rock or something like that, right? And I think you describe how this very nearly happened.
0: Yeah. You know, a really good way to start World War III, if you want to start it, would be to blow up the Dome of the Rock. And there were some Jewish extremists who very nearly did that about 30 years ago. Now, the other connection, millenarian connection, I would make to the end of the world is that one of the hotbeds of this end times narrative happens to be the United States Air Force, and in particularly the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And one of the things that I worry about is that an evangelically disposed SAC officer has a psychotic episode and launches the bombers or the missiles. The control of those are a lot is a lot more decentralized, particularly in terms of times of crisis than we would like to believe they are. And of course, there was a very famous movie, Dr. Strangelove, that came out about 50 years ago. And when Daniel Ellsberg, who was deeply concerned about the possibility of accidental nuclear war, saw that movie with his boss, they came blinking out of the sunlight and they said that wasn't fiction. That was a documentary.
2: Well, and you talk about how I think it was King Faisal who actually thought that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was like a legit book. Yeah. He printed
0: thousands and thousands of copies of it and would give it to everybody who he saw, including American diplomats who would look at it and sort of then look at their shoes.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, we like to think that there's a meritocracy which screens out fanatics, you know, the higher up you get into positions of power and authority. And it's disturbing the extent to which you realize that that is not the case. I mean, Ronald Reagan is a great story because he, over time, over the course of his presidency, he he shed some of the beliefs that were dangerous. Now, it's not because he adopted beliefs that were more rational, but he did seem to acknowledge that it was not a good idea to even contemplate nuclear war, right?
0: Exactly. You know, to his everlasting credit, Ronald Reagan, although he did have some magical belief systems, was capable of updating his priors. And he evolved his view of the Soviet Union 180 degrees, leaving that they were an evil empire into understanding that he had to work with the Russians and the Russians, you know, could be worked with and could be negotiated with. And at the end, he very nearly came to a very Almost complete nuclear arms agreement with Gorbachev, which unfortunately Gorbachev couldn't agree to because he wanted to keep Star Wars. Reagan wanted to keep Star Wars, and that was really unfortunate. But Ronald Reagan's evolution in thought, I I found was was one of the more heartwarming parts of the book to learn that people in power do occasionally change their minds.
2: Yeah, it's it's a mystery. I mean, how did that happen? Because a lot of the people in his administration, you know, shared some of these millenarian beliefs, right? Like I think. What Cap Weinberger did, and some others. I mean,
0: and James Watt, James Watt in particular. James Watt was once asked to, at, a, at a confirmation hearing for his job as a cabinet secretary, "What are you doing about the environment?" And he said, "Well, not much, because it really doesn't matter, because you know the world's ending fairly shortly anyway." And that was something that had never been heard before in a Senate hearing.
2: So, look, if we want to immunize people against falling prey to bubbles and fanaticism, how do we do this? I mean. It seems, you know, you talk a lot about IQ versus RQ, but when we think of things like IQ and RQ, we think of those as things that can't be taught, right? Things that you're kind of born with, like there's a distribution. But are there ways that we can kind of change people's vulnerability or susceptibility to these things? Or do we need to rely on, say, you know, the SEC and, and other kinds of regulations to kind of make it more difficult for these things to emerge?
0: I'm I'm skeptical about our ability to do that. I think there's some things that you can do around the margins. Certainly, critical thinking skills need to be taught to children, particularly in the age of the internet and social media. Children have to be taught that there are certain sources that are reasonably authoritative. You know, Wikipedia is as good as the Encyclopedia Britannica in terms of accuracy. That should be the first place anybody should go to when you want a fact-checked Something And kids need to be taught these schools what sources to pay attention to, what sources not to be paid attention to. Now, the one thing you see in international comparisons of how well-informed citizens are has to do with media structure. And so you find, for example, in Scandinavian countries, the average Scandinavian high school graduate has a better fund of knowledge than the American, average American college graduate. Why is that? Well, it's because the media in Scandinavian countries and in Northern Europe and in England and in Germany is mainly state-run and it is independently state-run. Of course, that's a very thin line to draw because obviously there can be problems with state-run media. But the state-run media companies in Scandinavia do a very good job of educating their populace. On the other hand, who runs the media in the United States? Well, it's people who are concerned with selling advertising. And how do you sell advertising? Well, you sell advertising by selling outrage and sensationalism. And then in England, you see uh, sort of a, a midway case. The English population is about halfway in between the American population and the northern European countries in terms of how well informed their citizenry is. And that's because they've got a mix with a vigorous state-run media, the BBC, in addition to a vigorous private sector as well. So somehow or other, you need to tone down the private sector and you need to tone up the public sector in terms of media. And then finally... The third thing that we definitely need to do, desperately need to do, is to turn off the algorithms. You know, that we need to turn off this three degrees of Alex Jones phenomenon where, you know, a young mother will go and want to know about how safe are the vaccines for my children. And within two clicks, she's at a vaccine denial site. We need to somehow turn that off because that is a function of the algorithmic optimization of advertising revenue. And that is is a highly corrosive thing to public and how well-informed the public is, and to our democracy as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to explain the Anabaptist phenomenon without the invention of the printing press, right? Printing press, right, exactly. And, and it would be hard to really explain the Internet bubble without CNBC, right, which you, you talk about. And it's kind of hard to explain the Bitcoin phenomenon without, like, you know, Reddit and Twitter, right? So, I mean, is it just like we get the bubbles that are media provides for us? Can we come up with a theory about how the shape, size, duration, and uh, contents of the, of the bubble will be a byproduct of our communication media?
0: Well, this is the world that Milton Friedman made for us, okay? Uh, you know, the companies exist to produce profits for their shareholders. Well, what produces profits for the shareholders and media companies? Well, it's advertising revenue. What generates advertising revenue? well, it's compelling, sensationalistic and morally compelling narratives that make people angry. It's outrage. You know, it's AM radio.
2: Well, I I think most people who read the Financial Times, they're much less likely, I think, to fall prey to uh, the Shiba Inu coin, let's say.
0: I think that's probably right. I mean, you know, if you somehow gave me one wish, it would be to make all of the world's citizens readers of The Economist so that they'd be able to suss out what's relevant and what's bs
2: and so if we're talking about ordinary people going through k through 12 education they're not getting this critical reasoning but what about at the you know higher education level it seems like you know we have fads and fashions that take over higher education from time to time we have intellectual bubbles that even those people who live in the elite universe fall prey to right
0: yeah i didn't i didn't want to be seen as picking purely on the right. The left certainly uh, has, has had its share of embarrassments as well. I mean, as a young man, I lived through one of them, which was 60s left-wing radicalism. Boy, is that something I'd, I'd like to forget now. And is there a left-wing bias in academic departments? Sure there is. I think something like 97% of sociologists are registered Democrats. Occasionally one comes across a conservative sociologist, but there are very few and far between.
2: Well, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I tell you, I mean, these books are, are just wonderfully compelling. They're hard to put down. Call them thrillers. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, they're, they're page turners. The most recent one is called uh, The Delusions of Crowds. Also, you know, a splendid exchange. Birth of Plenty. And of course, your investment books. Keep them coming. What's the next one? Well, the next one this summer will just be a second
0: edition of The Four Pillars of Investing. It's, a, it's an investment book, personal finance book. It's done rather well over the past 20 years. It's still in print. It's still selling well. It's getting a little stale, needs to be updated. So I'm in the process of doing that. And I don't know what I'm going to do for my next big history project, but I think it's going to have something to do with radius of trust, the radius of trust in society.
2: I like it. Well, thanks for joining me. Hope to chat again soon. Okay, my pleasure. You take it easy. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsilodpodcast.com.